0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. In light of the events of recent days, indeed in light of the events of recent months and years, we cannot begin today without pausing, recognizing, and talking a bit about what's happening. I have to begin by simply saying it'll take just a bit of time. And secondly, by saying that I have made it a practice in my ministry over the years to avoid making the pulpit a place that makes political statements. I realize there are those who disagree with me, colleagues in ministry who see it very differently, and I duly respect them. I'm just speaking about my own ministry and heart. But there come moments in time when things cannot be avoided and cannot be bypassed. In light of what has happened, I'd like to share just three thoughts with you, three key thoughts. First of all, we are Jesus' disciples. We're disciples of Jesus. That's who we are. That's our identity. There are two words that describe and define our identity beyond any others. And those two words are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are his disciples. In fact, if you would forgive me for saying it this way, we are owned by Jesus. By no one else. We are not owned by a political party, we are not owned by an ideology, we are not owned by any president, whether that president's name is Clinton or Bush or Obama or Trump or Biden. We are Jesus' disciples. Our identity is defined by in Christ. In fact, I would vehemently contend that that identity supersedes all others. It doesn't negate all others, but it supersedes them. My first identity is not that I'm an Adventist. It's not that I'm a husband. It's not that I'm a father. It's not that I'm a sibling or a neighbor. Each of those has deep importance, but each is made more important and more clear and more committed by the fact that I am in Christ. That's my key identity. We are disciples of Jesus. Secondly, who we are defines what we do. Jesus was clear on the fact that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. In fact, as the sands ran out in the hourglass of his earthly life, his disciples were ready to grasp the sword and fight. Even those who were trying him asked him about these matters. And Jesus was very clear. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. We belong to a spiritual kingdom. Having said that, our citizenship in that spiritual kingdom defines every aspect of how we live in this world. Everything we do in this world is defined by who we are as members of the kingdom of God. We live by the high ethical standard of Jesus. If we are to claim to be his disciples, then we must live by the ethic to which he calls us. That reaches every part of our lives. It means we care for the poor, that we welcome the stranger, that we visit the prisoner, that we work hard to provide for our needs and the needs of others. It means that we share the good news of a coming king with those who have not heard. It means, please hear me clearly, it means that there is no place, no place for prejudice, for bigotry, for hatred, for racism, Not in the kingdom of God. Not in the kingdom that is defined by John the Revelator as being made up of every nation, tribe, language, and people. Not in that kingdom. I hope I never outgrow the theologically rich meaning of those simple words I sang in Sabbath school as a child red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Because we are Jesus' disciples and because membership in his kingdom defines everything we choose to do, there is no place for treating people based on how different they are from us. That's the second thing. And the third thing. As Jesus' disciples whose ethic follows His, we are about the task of breaking down barriers, not erecting them. Over the years, you have heard me share many times from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, even recently. In times like these, I go back to that over and again because Paul is so utterly clear in what he says. Ephesians 2.14, Paul says that at the cross, the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility was demolished. Jesus tore it down, broke it apart, And yet, it seems that there are people in our day, people who name the name of Jesus, who are about the process of re-erecting that barrier, that wall of hostility that Christ tore down at the cross. Friends, that's not who we are. Not if we belong to Jesus. If we belong to Jesus, we are called to be people who unify, not divide, who draw together, not separate. So I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to turn off the news feeds that are stoking the hatred and the division. Turn them off. I want to ask you to stop defining your life by how many likes you get on social media when you issue forth a screed against somebody who is, at best, hateful. I want to ask you to lay aside those things because those things have the tendency to make us feel like we've done something in the world. We've gotten a lot of likes, so we've made a difference in the world. Let me ask you to turn that off and to do this. Go find someone with whom you differ. Someone who is different from you. If you're a white person, as am I, find a person of color. If you're a person of color, find a white person. If you're a Republican, find a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, find a Republican. Engage with that person and engage with that person while constantly in your heart, praying the deep, the real, and this demanding prayer. Simple, succinct, but substantial. God, teach me to love. Teach me to love. Teach me to love those with whom I differ. Teach me to love those who have mistreated me. After all, I suspect that Jesus meant it when he said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. What if you and I right where we are, person to person, Took Jesus at his word. What if you and I paid heed to the words of the Apostle Paul, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's who we are in these politically polarized days when our, our leaders disappoint us to the core. Let us never forget that our key identity is that we are in Christ. We are Jesus' disciples. That defines everything that we do. We are about tearing barriers down, not about erecting them. So I'd like to ask you to do something with me right now. I'm going to kneel right here And I'm going to ask if you would kneel where you are. That's right. Get up out of the easy chair. Get off the couch. And with me, go to your knees. As we pray, certainly for our country, certainly for our leaders, but as we pray most of all for our own hearts to be right before God and to be right with others. Would you kneel with me? God of all grace. God of all people. God who loves all equally. First of all, God, we repent. We repent for being hateful. For speaking words that spew vitriol. We repent of seeing people as of different value. We repent of dividing rather than uniting. We repent of not being truthful and of not basing justice on truth. We repent of the ways that we have failed. Failed you failed others, and even failed ourselves. We repent. Secondly, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of all people, that you love the marginalized, the persecuted, the downtrodden. You have a special place in your heart for those who have struggled and have been treated in despicable ways. We thank you that you love us even when we have failed. We thank you that that love not only draws us to your heart, but then pushes us outward to the others in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Calvary. We thank you for a resurrected Lord who one day will be proclaimed by every nation, kindred, tribe, and people as the Lord of all. We repent. We thank you. And we entreat you, thirdly. We entreat you to fill us, to change us, to transform us, to empower us. We entreat you to give us a profound discomfort when we stay in the cocoons of our own safety. We entreat you to drive us outward, to engage with those who are on the other side of wherever we might be, and to do so in the power and the love of Jesus Christ. We entreat you not to let us rest until we have done what is necessary in our own worlds to bring about truth, justice, reconciliation, and a united body of Christ like the one for which Jesus prayed. So God, we repent, we thank, and we entreat, and we do it All in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, I understand that was a bit of a long introduction. But now we turn our thoughts to our study for the day. We are just at the beginning of 2021. We've just taken a few bites off of 2021, but we have done enough to realize 2021 in many ways is not that different from 2020. Somehow we think that that when the clock strikes midnight and the year turns and it becomes the first of January, that all that stuff back there will be left behind. And we soon discover actually not a whole lot has changed and because of that even though we're only a few days into the year you have probably come to the conclusion i still have all this stuff with me in fact you may feel like i think the driver on i-93 in new hampshire that day about three years ago must have felt the state trooper actually pulled the driver over ticketed him, towed His vehicle wouldn't allow him to continue on his journey. Now, I I want you to know why. Because that driver, I think, had a bit of a difficult time setting priorities, couldn't decide what was essential, what was of most importance, and what could be left behind. And so he just took it all, loaded it all up, and took it all with him. This is what his van looked like. Here's a shot. From the front. Look at that. And here's a shot from the rear. Look at that. You know what that looks like to me? That looks like somebody who cannot prioritize what's essential and what is not. And here's the simple truth. When we cannot prioritize, everything becomes essential. And when everything is essential, our life is overloaded. We get ticketed and towed. And so right now, second Sabbath of the new year, we begin a new series entitled simply First, Second, Third, Fourth. I'm going to be joined by three of my colleagues in this series. Today we begin with First, God. Next week, Pastor Philip Milosavlevich will talk to us about Second, Family. The third week, Pastor Josh, Pastor Josh Jamison will, will engage the topic third work. And the last week, Pastor Chris Stanley, will be talking about fourth play. I look forward to that, don't you? And so today we begin with first, God. So when we're setting priorities, when we're sorting through, what comes first, second, third. Fourth, What biblical help might we find? I want to take us to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, to find the words of Jesus that will help us with this first priority. To set a bit of the context for where we are in Matthew, you'll immediately recognize that we're about two-thirds of the way through the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew chapter 6 the Sermon on the Mount, that powerful sermon, that sermon that that rises to poetic heights and yet don't allow the poetry, the beauty, the symmetry of the words to to hide from you the deep demands that Jesus here issues, the, the elevation of an extremely high ethical standard. In fact, such is the case in the words we'll read. Because here what we read from Jesus will help us set priorities. Now, before we read the passage, I want to ask you to pay attention to two things. First of all, pay attention to the occurrence of the word worry. Worry. You'll notice that it appears in the NIV six times. Pay attention to the occurrence of the phrase, do not worry. That will appear here three times. So pay attention to that. Second thing I want you to pay attention to is pay attention to the appearance of a word that only comes one time in this passage. It's the Greek word protos. In English, it's translated first. First. Anytime we're considering priorities and anytime Jesus uses the word first, we ought to pay attention. Jesus lays before us in these words two different ways that we can go about the setting of priorities. The first one I would call the way of worry. The second one I would call the way of worship. So we begin with the way of worry. So read with me Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Jesus is talking about the bottom line needs of life. He's talking to people who live in a society and in a culture where the things that he mentions, drink, water, food, clothing, those have to be high on the priority list. In fact, I suspect some of them would have argued those have to be the top items on our priority list if we are to survive. There's no refrigeration. There's no running water. There's no certainty that those needs will be provided for. In fact, for many people who were listening to Jesus, when they got up in the morning, the legitimate and penetrating first question was, what are we going to eat? Where's the water we're going to drink? In a world like his, water was more precious than gold. You could not assume that it was available. In fact, when we move to a new vicinity, move to a new house, new neighborhood, new city, I suspect we spend very little time thinking about food and water. I mean, we'll take notice that the grocery stores down there is just three blocks down there or it's a mile over this direction. We may ask the realtor, is there a water filtration system in the house or will we need to get one? And beyond that, we give it very little thought. Not so to the listener to Jesus. It was the difference between life and death. I want you to listen to the words of New Testament scholar Robert Mounts as he writes about these things in this passage. Here's what Mounts says. Since serving God rules out serving money, which was what Jesus has just said in the previous section of the Sermon on the Mount, the logical conclusion is that followers of Christ should not be anxiously concerned about food and clothing. God takes care of the birds who neither plant nor gather a harvest into barns. He also dresses the flowers of the field in garments more beautiful than Solomon with all his wealth could secure. Children of the kingdom are certainly of greater value than birds. And while grass is here today and gone tomorrow. When you worry about such things, you're not only like the pagans, but you dishonor God as well. He is fully aware of your needs. Worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. Ooh, those are tough words. The American essayist and critic, Joseph Wood Crutch, observes, however, anxiety and distress, interrupted occasionally by pleasure, is the normal course of human existence. So that writer that mounts quotes, anxiety and distress, he says, that's what we deal with every single day. And then occasionally there are interruptions of pleasure. That certainly would have been the case in the world of Jesus' listeners. They had to, to survive. And so as they stand there, as they sit there and listen to the words of Jesus, and he has the temerity, the audacity to say, do not worry. I really wonder what they were thinking. I think I would have been tempted to think, what are you talking about, Jesus? With all due respect. If I don't make these items number one on my priority list, I may not survive. And yet Jesus says, and then he says again, and then he says again, do not worry. In other words, don't set your priorities by the way of worry. Don't let the anxiety and the stress of all that you have to take care of in life be the driving force for how you list your priorities. Because if you do, your life will be filled with anxiety and worry and concern. Why? Because you can never fully or adequately complete them. In the world of Jesus, no matter how much they worried and set their priority list by water and food and clothing, they could never have a supply sufficient to care for their needs. Not for tomorrow, not for next week, not for next month. Always just a bit of famine, a lack of rain, or a flood away from losing their lives. So Jesus takes the way of worry as a mechanism for setting our priorities and he sweeps it aside. All right, Jesus. Then if that's not how we set our priorities, exactly how do we set them? Enter the second way, the way of worship. The way of worship, that Jesus says, is the way to set your priorities. You remember before we read the passage, I said, watch for the appearance of the word first. It only appears one time in the passage and it actually appeared, you caught it when we read it, no doubt, in Matthew 6, verse 33. I wanna reread that verse right now. It comes right toward the very end of the passage we read. Verse 33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, And all these things will be given to you as well. I want you to get a picture in your mind's eye of Jesus on the hillside. We've had the privilege of being there. I can see it in my mind's eye, that beautiful verdant green hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. His listeners are seated there listening to him. And no doubt they are even there making a tally of what they need to do. So picture in your mind's eye a person who has out that to-do list and is saying, okay, first of all, drink. Where do we get water for today? We've got to have water. If we don't have water, nothing else really matters that much. Secondly, where do we get food for today? We can only go two or three days without Clearly answering that question. Thirdly, for people who typically had one garment that they wore, and when that garment was getting frayed at the elbows, frayed at the knees, where do I get my next garment? They're making their priority list. And Jesus says, stop. Seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. Now, what does that mean, Jesus? Does that mean we sit in our hovel hoping that somebody will bring water? We sit out in the front part of our village hoping somebody will bring food? What do you mean? Seek first. There's a little volume entitled Making All Things New. It's written by Henry Nowen. It's a slim little volume, but what a f- powerful piece it is. I want to read to you from Nowen's volume. I want to read three paragraphs, thoughtfully considering what Nowen has to say about this very concept. Listen to what Nouwen writes. Jesus does not respond to our worry-filled way of living by saying that we should not be so busy with worldly affairs. He does not try to pull us away from the many events, activities, and people that make up our lives. He does not tell us that what we do is unimportant, valueless, or useless. Nor does he suggest that we should withdraw from our involvements and live quiet, restful lives removed from the struggles of the world. So first of all, in that first paragraph, Nowen is suggesting that by Jesus saying, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he is not saying, Don't worry about the water. Don't, don't make a plan of where you're going to find it. Don't cook a meal. Don't even go looking for a cl-. He's not doing any of that. That's not his way of dealing with it. Second paragraph, what is then? Jesus' response to our worry-filled lives is quite different. He asks us to shift the point of gravity, to relocate the center of our attention, to change our priorities. Jesus wants us to move from the many things to the one necessary thing. It is important for us to realize that Jesus in no way wants us to leave our many-faceted world. Rather, he wants us to live in it, but firmly rooted in the center of all things. Jesus does not speak about a change of activities, a change in contacts, or even a change of pace. He speaks about a change of heart. This change of heart makes everything different, even while everything appears to remain the same. This is the meaning of set your hearts on his kingdom first, and all these other things will be given you as well. What counts here is where our hearts are. When we worry, we have our hearts in the wrong place. Jesus asks us to move our hearts to the center where all other things fall into place. I want you to capture that. Jesus is driving us in the direction of a change of heart, of a change of where our heart is centered and located. So where should that be? Third paragraph. What is this center? Jesus calls it the kingdom, the kingdom of his Father. For us in the 20th century, that's when Nouwen wrote, this may not have much meaning, Kings and kingdoms do not play an important role in our daily life, but only when we understand Jesus' words as an urgent call to make the life of God's Spirit our priority can we see better what is at stake. A heart set on the Father's kingdom is also a heart set on the spiritual life. To set our hearts on the kingdom, therefore, means to make the life of the Spirit within and among us the center of all we think, say, or do. Not a change of activity. Not a change of connection. Not a change of demands. But a change of heart. I puzzled a bit about how to illustrate that. And then I realized I I actually live it every day of my life. April 26, 1987. I know that dates me, but April 26, 1987 was the day when Anita and I said, I do to each other. That changed the location of my heart, of our hearts. That changed the center of our hearts. You see, before then, quite naturally, uh, primary among the words that we used were words like I and me and mine. Primary among the ones that we had to consult and decision was ourselves. But once we had said, I do, that shifted. Now the key words became words like us and we and our. Now she for me and me for her became key in every key decision in life. In fact, it was quite ironic While I was literally typing those words this week into my computer working on this sermon, I got a text from Anita. phone beeped. I looked at it. It was from her. She was planning a a, a celebration for a dear friend of hers, a a birthday celebration this coming week. Because of the day and time in which we live, those things have to be done differently. And so they were ordering food from a restaurant and then They'll distribute it and on Zoom they'll get together. She texted me and she said, We're celebrating, and she named the person's birthday this coming week. We're ordering from Napoli, a local Italian restaurant. What would you like? I'm not part of the celebration. I'm not going to be in the Zoom party. I'm not part of that particular group. And yet, When you've given your heart and your life to someone you see even the most simple details of life through the lens, through the prism of that person. Now I want you to notice after April 26, 1987 there were many things in our outward lives that did not change. We still studied, we still worked, we still had friends, we still had hobbies. We still read, and many of those things happen in our own lives. So like and said, Jesus is not saying, change everything that you do. What he is saying is, give me your heart. Give me the first, last, and best of who you are. And when you are in that kind of relationship with me, then everything, Everything you do will be seen through the lens, through the prism of the divine companion who walks with you every day. Every decision, every action, every thought is seen through that lens. In that way, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It struck me as I was reading this passage this week that the Bible has a word for that. When we love God with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, when we honor God for His worth in our lives, His place in our lives, when we give Him the best of what we are, when we give Him our service, the Bible has a word for that. And the word is worship. Worship. So when Jesus tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he is asking us to set our priorities based on the way of worship. Because he knows that when we love him supremely, when we honor him with all that we are, when we've changed the center of our hearts, every other priority will fall into place in deeply meaningful ways. So I invite you, I encourage you to reject the way of worry to embrace the way of worship, to honor God with your love and your life, and all else will become more simple.